From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Additional funding for the Matty Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. As well as support from Era Energy LLC, Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant, Nossaman LLC, Sagasser Watkins and Whelan, and Valley Children's Hospital. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. California is big. Some have even described it as a nation state. Every two years, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst office comply, compiles a comprehensive look at the state of California in a publication called CalFacts. Um, Carolyn Chu with the LAO uh, is here to discuss the most recent findings. Welcome to the Matty Report. Thank you. So let's start with California's economy. Um, there are 17 million jobs in California. Who does what where? So CalFax is our best attempt uh, to try to summarize a very diverse and, and large state. Yeah, this, and this is amazing. This, this pamphlet is, what, 52 pages, and it covers yes. about 40 million people. Correct. Um, that's pretty amazing that you summarize it like that. But okay, so... Talk about the, the economy. Sure. So California really has a number of regional economies with certain areas of the state having higher concentrations of certain types of jobs. So, for instance, as many people know, the Bay Area has a high concentration of technology jobs and professional services like lawyers. The greater L.A. region is a hub for goods, so there are a lot of warehousing and transportation jobs. Unsurprisingly, Sacramento has a high proportion of the, of the state's workforce. Right, and of course, in, in the Central Valley, it's agriculture. Correct. So, okay. Um, it's, what, the sixth largest economy in the world or something like that? Fifth or sixth, depending on yeah, where where, where uh, currencies are trading. It's, it's right up there. Um, okay, so what about income levels? Uh, how do top incomes in California compare to top incomes in the U.S.? And do they vary by, I assume they vary by region and occupation. That's correct. California, on average, has higher incomes than the rest of the United States. There is broad regional variation and variation within regions across the income spectrum. Overall incomes are highest in areas like the Bay Area. But as an example for the income distribution, if you look at San Diego, the top 10% of earners earn about $300,000 a year, where the median household earns about $66,000 a yeah, year. Yeah, I was, looking, I, was, I was doing a deep dive into your numbers, and this, even a broader extreme, took a look at the San Joaquin Valley, the top, you're in the top 10% if you make $216,000. Mm-hmm. you got to make almost double that. Uh, to be in the top 10% in the Bay Area, $404,000. Um, and then just uh, I thought it was really interesting, looking at the average salary in California versus the average salary in the United States, it's $64,000 in California, $55,000 in the United States, so a, a bit higher. Um, uh, no, no surprise there. Uh, let's talk about the aging of California's workforce. Um, what are the numbers there? I'm assuming you've got a baby boom generation that's kind of moving through. That's right. In the 90s, California had a high proportion of prime working age folks who are now close or about to enter retirement age. As a result, California's working population is going to grow slowly over the next couple of years. Looking ahead, California's workforce actually may may not grow at all because women had fewer children over the last couple of decades. Yeah, and again, looking at the numbers, the numbers are 2.5 on average in the 90s. Now it's 1.8. Um, That's so right. It's dropping, and you know who's going to be replacing? I mean, think about that. A lot of companies and organizations are losing some of their senior talent. Who's going to replace them? Um, and that, that's a question. So let's talk about the other end of the continuum um, from income poverty. Uh, 
What are the levels of the working poor in California, and those making less than, say, $15 an hour? So most of those making less than $15 an hour in California are in the service industry, folks like custodians or those in the retail sector. Overall, about 12% of Californians earn somewhere between $11 and $12 an hour, but that was before the most recent increase to the minimum wage in January. So those uh, levels might be a little bit higher now. You know, it's interesting. Again, your numbers, it's just amazing what's in this, this booklet. I'm, I'm picking out all these interesting numbers. What I found in there was 5.2 million, 13%, uh, in California are below the federal poverty line. That's a That's pretty correct. high number. Yes. And a larger portion of those are children. Uh, yes. 19% are children. 15% of those without a college degree. By the way, only 5% with a college degree. So you want to stay out of poverty, get a college degree. Um, and even some seniors, 10% of seniors uh, are in poverty. So that's uh, interesting. And by the way, about a third of all workers, according to your report, make less than $15 an hour. So uh, some interesting things. about Really economic uh, disparity in, in California, it seems like. Um, so a major driver of poverty is housing, right? Yes. Um, of course, on the other hand, if you own your home, that's probably a ma major source of your assets, of your wealth. So uh, it seems to be driving the poverty rate. How do home prices compare in California to the U.S.? And what about renters? Uh, how does it affect renters in, in California? Sure. So to your point, actually, if you take into account things like the cost of housing in California, 19% of Californians live in poverty using that supplemental right, measure. Right. There's two different measures of poverty. That's right. When you're at housing, it's even higher. That's right. right. So on average, a California home costs about 2.5 times the cost of a home on average in the rest of the United States. So it's considerably higher. Renters also, uh, rent is about 50% higher in California than the rest of the nation. So um, a two-bedroom uh, in California on average is about $1,800 a month. That, of course, varies across right. the state. In the Bay Area, it's about $3,000 a month. And in Fresno, it's about 1000 It's interesting. I, I did a little math. And I said, okay, if you're making $15 an hour, that means you're bringing home $2,550 a month. So that means you're using about three-quarters of your income on housing if you're renting uh, running a place. That that really seems to capture it. Uh, pretty significant. Um, okay, well, up next, we're going to take a, uh, another look at uh, California state and local finances. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Heppler with the Maddie Institute. I'm talking with Carolyn Chu with the California's nonpartisan legislative analyst office that every two years publishes something called CalFAX. I'm going to show the folks. There you go. Um, great little pamphlet that provides key information about the state. So what about state and local finances in California? Let's talk about some of the main sources of revenue for the state and local governments. Now, you report that in 2016-17, taxes in California raised a total of about $210 billion, nearly equal to 10% of the economy, and that state government uh, collected about two-thirds of those uh, taxes. Can you explain kind of the key sources of state and local government revenue? Sure. So for the state, the largest single source of tax revenue is the personal income tax. For this year, we estimate the personal income tax will raise about $100 billion. After that, it's the sales tax at a little over $25 billion, and then the corporation tax, which is somewhere around $12, 12 to $14 billion. For local governments, the largest source of tax revenue is the property tax, followed usually by the sales tax. And there's depending a cap on, on property tax, this is Prop 13. That's correct. So it seems like the... That's one of the reasons why um, the state seems to have a little more control because he who has the money makes the rules, who has the gold makes the rules, and you know since Prop 13, it seems like the power shifted toward the state a little bit. In some more, respects, in some yes. respects, yeah, particularly education. Um, so uh, personal income tax, uh, it overtook sales tax then as the state the main source of state revenue. 
Um, but why are personal, you always hear they're volatile, personal income taxes are volatile. Why is that so? There are two primary reasons the personal income tax is volatile. The first is what is considered personal income for the purposes of tax. California, unlike the federal government, includes capital gains as part of personal income. And those typically are more volatile year to year. So it's kind of like stock market, you know, you get a gain right. in the stock market. That's right. Up, so when the stock market's doing well, California's flush with money. That's correct. Of course, when the stock market isn't, which also kind of creates a conundrum, right? When, when the stock market's not doing well and the economy is not doing well, that's right the time when the state needs the money. And that's that's right. right the time when it's not getting it. That's right. Uh, that's right. That's a problem. So the second reason um, the personal income tax is volatile is because of the progressive rate structure. California taxes those who make more at higher rates. Mm -hmm. And over the past few decades, uh, higher income groups have seen larger gains uh, in their income. Yeah, there was a, uh, I think we've had Dan Walters on from time to time. I think he cited something called, you know, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree. People like taxes as long as they're not directed at them. Um, so, okay, so given the volatility uh, with the revenue structure in California, uh, voters passed Prop 2 back in 2014 that essentially set aside uh, some revenue in good economic years to take care of what happens in those bad economic years. Can you explain how that works and how the budget reserve has grown over time? Yes, so Proposition 2 takes a share of general fund revenues, so from the personal income tax, sales tax, and corporation tax, in addition to a portion of capital gains revenues when the economy is particularly robust. That happens according to a complicated set of formulas. But then essentially what happens is that amount of money is split in half to pay down state debts and then put the rest into the reserves. Since 2014, state reserves have grown from about $2 billion to almost $14 billion. Wow. Um, that's 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 quite a quite a large jump. Um, I think, and I was reading again your report, there's so much in here, it was 3.7%. The reserve was 3.7% in 2014-15. It's jumped to 16.8% in uh, fiscal year 18-19. So it's almost a four times, more than a four times jump in, in what you're I wouldn't want to call it the rainy day fund because I'm confused. There's several funds, but yes. the reserve. Overall reserves. Overall yes. reserves, yes. yes. Okay. Um, so let's take a look then. We'll shift from revenues to expenses, that side of the ledger. What are the major expenses in the state budget? The two largest categories of spending for the general fund budget are K-12 education, which is about 40% of the budget, and Medi-Cal, the state's uh, health insurance program for low-income individuals. It seems like though a lot of people think that it's the prisons. Um, it, it isn't, is it? No. They're way down the list. Yes. Yeah, that's, I think that's a problem. In fact, you add higher education to the education, but it's over 50% That's education. correct, yeah. So education is the big driver, uh, it seems like, uh, for expenses. Uh, but on health and, health and human services as well. So let's talk about state and local governments and their financial relationship. It's kind of unique. How has it changed over the years? Well, as you mentioned, uh, Proposition 13 fundamentally changed local governments in that their property taxes were capped. Consequently, their revenues were capped. Subsequently, the state and counties in particular had a series of changes in responsibility for programs and, and, and fiscal responsibility for those programs that really changed um, the landscape of how services are delivered in California. Yeah, and it seems like counties have a lot to do with, with health and human services, and they're getting a lot of that money from state or federal government. That's correct. Yeah, uh, it's a huge part of their budget. So uh, let's talk about local governments. You've got city, county, and sp people forget, special districts. Um, they're out there, too. What functions do they do, and where do they get their money to do it? So all local governments, counties, cities, and special districts, provide a variety of municipal services like water, sewer, parks, and other public works. Um, counties also provide a variety of countywide services, like elections or property assessment. And then, as you already talked about, counties provide um, 
a lot of human service and health services. You've also got those on special districts. And That's there's right. A ton of those, and, and it's like God, they cover a lot of the cemeteries. I mean, yes, they yes. cover a lot of different things as well. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, so many many special districts are single single service special districts where their primary responsibility is for a single thing like water or parks or cemeteries in right, some cases. Right. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for providing that overview of state and, and local finances. Up next, we're going to talk a little more about education. As you said, the largest expenditure in the state budget. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Carolyn Chu of the nonpartisan legislative analyst office. California public education, uh, from kindergarten through college, largest in the country, um, and it's also the biggest expense, as we said, of the state budget. So where does the money come from for K-12 education, and how does spending on education compare historically over time? How do we look compared to other states? Sure. So overall spending on K-12 and community colleges comes from uh, the state general fund and property taxes. Overall, statewide, about two-thirds from the general fund and one-third is from local property taxes. Currently, for K-12 education, state spending is at an all-time high at about $11,500 per student. When wow. you include federal funding, you get to about $17,000 per student. Does that the 11? That so that's the average, right? So that's statewide. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, there's also some uh, when you talk about state funding for education, there's some additional money provided for certain students. Um, local control funding formula. So there's base funding. That's right? right. And then in addition to that, there's funding for things like English as a second language, and the percentage that you have of students who are dealing with that issue. Um, so what's the base funding and, and, and how much additional funding is this local control funding formula providing? So the local control funding formula, or LCFF, provides base rates, as you mentioned, depending on what grade a student is in, and then these additional monies for low-income and English learner students. The base rates range from about $8,000 for a kindergarten through third grader to $9,000 in high school. For English learner and low-income students, it depends on how many of these students are enrolled in a district. For districts with low concentrations of these students, they receive about $400 per student, but with districts with very high concentrations of these students, they get about $3,500 a student. Yeah, it used to be they had something called categorical imperatives. That was money specifically targeted for certain programs. They got rid of that, and they instead used this LCFF to, uh, and then the school districts decide how to spend that money. That's right. The funding is flexible, and school districts can spend it as they determine. Okay, so let's talk about the key metrics for education, uh, meeting state standards, and how do we compare nationally? Is there an achievement gap going on here? So uh, less than 50% of California students uh, meet state standards in reading and math. When it comes to a national comparison, California students overall score a little below average nationally. Um, Looking within California, the achievement gap is most pronounced for black and Latino students who score on average below their white and Asian peers. Low-income students also score lower on average than their peers. And so we have more of those in California than the other states in the nation, and so therefore it affects the, the, how well they're doing on, on exams. And one of the reasons why they have the local control funding format to provide more funding to, to help these students. Um, okay, let's talk about public universities. Um, how popular are they? Um, how many students are there? What's the demographic breakdown of typical UC, CSU, community college students? So uh, the community college system with over 100 campuses is by far uh, the largest um, place for higher education in California. About 60% of undergraduates in California are enrolled at the community college system. 60%? That's right. It's a huge number. Well, it's, it's a good deal. I mean, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. In fact, very inexpensive. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Essentially free. Uh, about 14% of undergraduates are at the state, uh, California State University system, CSU, and 8% are at UC. 
overall, the demographic breakdown at the community college system and the CSU system reflect the state's demographics. So it's, it's similar. So you don't see a big change from going K-12 in terms of performance when they get to college. That those achievement gaps still exist to some extent. The lowest graduation rates are for black and Latino students. Okay. Um, so let's talk about uh, the funding and costs of higher education. Where is the money coming from and, and what is it being spent on? Um, so for the community college system, the vast majority, almost all of their core funding comes from either the state or local property taxes. Because they're treated a little differently. Some people, they say K-12, but when you talk about education funding, it's really K-14. to That's right. Um, for the CSU system, about 70% um, of their core funding comes from the state, and for the University of California, it's about 60%. Yeah, and one thing I've noticed is that, that the tuition at UCs and CSUs have gone up pretty dramatically. Yes. Um, and I want to say it almost doubled um, in like since the 90s or something. It's, it's gone up quite a bit. So more is expected of the students or their families who are paying for their education. Uh, yes. Uh, for those uh, students on financial aid, typically most of their costs are covered by the state. So let me ask you this. Um, there's been reports that say that uh, California is going to need about a million more college graduates in the next 10 years if it's going to stay competitive economically. Um, so have graduation rates improved? Graduation rates um, have been improving at CSU. Right now, they're about 60% that has been improving over the last couple of decades. The graduation rates that you see are higher at about 80%, um, but only about half of community college students graduate. Yeah, so when they get into community college, it's, that's where, I guess, where you would do really well if you can get those students to continue on to either getting a degree or certificate or moving on to, the, to college, four-year college. Um, well, that, thanks for that summary uh, on California education, kindergarten through college, a lot to cover. Up next, we're going to address a myriad of other important state issues, things like dealing with poverty, crime, health, transportation, and the environment. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Carolyn Chu of California's nonpartisan legislative analyst office that publishes CalFacts, a compendium of facts about the state. Let's show the, the audience. This is your book that you want to get. Um, <laughs> anyway, we talked about education as the biggest expense in the state budget, but there are a lot of other programs the state's involved with dealing with poverty, health, uh, natural resources, transportation, et cetera. Uh, let's talk about some of those programs. So first, let's talk about uh, the major human service programs like SSI, CalFresh, otherwise known as food stamps, um, CalWORKs, you know, welfare, et cetera. Can you tell us, what can you tell us about those programs? Sure. So California has a wide range of programs, um, to uh, human services programs to help folks. Um, and these are just a few snapshots. So California has about 4 million families or individuals enrolled in CalFresh, um, the food assistance program. Mm -hmm. There are 1.3 million people enrolled in SSI, SSP, which provides cash assistance to the elderly who are disabled. And the, and the blind. And, and the blind, and, yeah. yes. So it's, it's, yes. it's protecting those people we want to protect in society. Yeah, okay. and then California has about half a million people enrolled in the in-home supportive services program, which helps um, disabled and elderly individuals with activities of daily living so that they can St stay, stay in their home. homes. And, you know, and increasing that's important to yes. elderly people. I had elderly parents and they really wanted, they didn't want to go to a senior facility. They want to stay at home. Yeah, and it's, Calif it's California's fastest growing human services program. And it's going to continue with the baby boom generation. I think you're going to see that continue. Yeah. Um, okay, what can you tell us about health-related issues, things like health insurance, healthcare spending, mental health, things like that? Um, so about half of um, Californians have their health insurance through a private provider. Most of those um, people get in health insurance through their employer. 40% of Californians receive health insurance through a public provider, so that's pre predominantly through Medi-Cal, the state's low-income 
health insurance program or Medicare, the federal program for health care for... Uh, Those were, that expanded a lot with the ACA. The Medi-Cal did, yes, right, right. expanded um, considerably. And then 10% of Californians do not have comprehensive coverage. Um, overall, annual spending on health care is about $400 billion a year. Wow. The largest payer are healthcare plans who make payments on behalf of their enrollees, and the largest category of spending uh, is on hospitals. Yeah, yeah, it's very expensive. The hospital stays are incredibly expensive. Um, okay, so let's talk about crime and incarceration in California. What can you tell us about that? Um, crime in California has been declining over the last 30 years, which is similar to the rest of the nation. Over the last 10 years, California's state prison population also has been declining, largely in response to policy changes that the state yeah, has Because made. the courts were saying you've, you've got too many people in prisons. Uh, it's, it's larger. It's beyond capacity. That's right. Basically. So California realigned, moved a number of um, uh, in, incarcerated individuals from state prisons to county jails. Which, by the way, it's, it's just, as, a, as a layperson, a, a term I learned that there's a difference between a jail and a prison. There prison is. Prison is state, jail is county. That is right. Okay. That is right. All right. So let's talk about, uh, we're covering a lot of green ground <laughs> here, uh, California's environment, things like air, water, natural resources, wildfires. What can you tell us about that? Um, so in recent years, California has seen some of the largest and most destructive wildfires since the early 1900s. Last year, California spent about $2 million on response and recovery efforts to wildfires, in addition to federal uh, monies, which are significant in these cases. Uh, in terms of water, as many people know, most of the rain falls in the northern part of the state, and California has a very extensive network of canals to move that water the around. Is the people live in the south, right? So, <laughs> That's the correct. The demands are in the south. That's correct. And in Calfax, we have some maps that show the different canals uh, that the mm -hmm. state has. Uh, in terms of the air pollution. Before you jump into oh, air, sure. I just mentioned something about those canals. With subsidence, oh, this over reliance on gr um, groundwater pumping, some of those canals are cracking or sinking, and so That's now right. you can't convey the water as efficiently as you used to be able to. That's right. That's another problem. But So there we go. So what about air? Oh, air. Uh, the pollution burden, so the relative levels of pollution across the state vary. Mm -hmm. um, some of the areas with... Uh, Heavier pollution burdens or, or, you know, just more pollution are the San Joaquin Valley and certain regions of L.A. County. Yeah, we're very well aware of that. It's the basin, right? And then it just it heats up and all kinds of problems. Let's talk about uh, transportation. Uh, voters just approved a 12, uh, 12 cent uh, sales, a gas tax. What can you tell us about transportation infrastructure in California? So the recent increase in the gas tax was paid, uh, was to pay for maintenance of California's transportation infrastructure. Much of California's transportation infrastructure is in need of repairs. About half of state highways are in what's called fair condition and need some amount of repairs. And the majority of transportation... That means, by the way, when you're saying that, that means the other half are in not such great repair. That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, uh, and then... The uh, transportation infrastructure, uh, much of it needs to be replaced, as uh, most of it is at midlife, the end of its useful life, or actually past its useful life. Things like city buses, rail cars, that sort of thing. Okay, so uh, transportation and other infrastructure products, they're, they're funded typically with bonds. Those payments come from the state's general fund, generally. Uh, what does the debt service of the state look like? Um, so debt service, bond payments for the state, uh, comprises about 4% of the state general fund annually, a little bit more than that. Um, which is actually a little bit lower than uh, historically in some years we were, were above 5%. Yeah, it's, it, people don't understand, I think, sometimes when they look at a bond, um, it's actually going to cost you twice as much when you get done paying interest. I usually just look at the number and just double it, and that's going to be the cost of the taxpayer. Typically, that's it's putting, right. Putting the stuff on the, on the credit card, as it were. 
All right. That's right. Well, I want to thank Carolyn Chu from the California's nonpartisan legislative analyst office for covering a lot of ground today. Up next, tremendous political, social, and economic differences exist throughout California. Perhaps the most stark are those between coastal California, which is generally prospered, and inland California, which is generally lagged. Indeed, if the two were split into two states, coastal California would be among the wealthiest states in the nation, and inland California would be among the poorest. What can be done to address this economic imbalance? That conversation in a moment. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Back in 2012, the California Stewardship Network, an alliance promoting economic vitality, and California Forward, a bipartisan good government reform effort, hosted the first ever California Economic Summit. Over the last four years, the summit has worked with regional and state leaders to develop a shared agenda to generate jobs and improve regional competitiveness. What do the unique regions of the state have to do to promote job creation and create a stronger economy for the state as a whole? We'll ask. James Mayer, President and CEO of California Forward. Fred Silva, Senior Fiscal Policy Advisor for California Forward. Matt Leger, Research Analyst with SEIU United Health Workers. Kathy Martin, Vice President of Workforce Policy for the California Hospital Association. And Kathy Creswell, a housing policy specialist with Creswell Consulting. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. The California Economic Summit is an attempt to connect regional and state leaders to develop a shared agenda to generate jobs and improve regional competitiveness. One of the founders of that effort is with us today, James Mayer, the President and CEO of Cal Forward, a bipartisan good government reform group. Uh, welcome to Mad Report. Happy to be here. So, Jim, uh, tell us a little bit about the California Economic Summit, the who, what, when, where, why, how, who's involved, what's the general idea? We launched this about five years ago uh, in this partnership with those regional organizations you mentioned because there was the belief that the state really didn't have a coherent plan to do economic recovery and grow the kind of resilient economies we needed at the community and regional level. And we needed a venue to bring together state, local, regional leaders from public, private, and civic sectors to really figure out what those policy drivers were and then to steadily make progress towards what we wanted in state law and local practice. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it seemed like you had silos before, right? The state was doing its thing or the localities were doing its thing. It's, you've kind of done a hybrid approach, it sounds like, with this regional approach. Um, Absolutely. And what we found was the regions actually had um, economic strategies, but they hadn't counted on any action from the state. They literally had written off the state as a partner, um, but yet they need the state. They need the state resources. The state regulations are either helping or hurting them. And this has created a way to both connect what regions were needing to do and candidly gave state leaders um, a, a, a sound way of understanding what regions needed. Now, I, I remember we were doing the California Partnership with the San Joaquin Valley. Um, that was one of these kinds of regional efforts. And legislators were going to this uh, this uh, partnership and saying, what legislation do you need to help move whatever the agenda was for, whether it's air quality or economic development, what have you. So I assume that you've got some, with the summit, uh, you set up some annual goals. Um, how do you make sure those goals are, are accomplished? Uh, well, we actually, well, so we do set annual goals and we base that on the priorities of the regions. And each year uh, we have work that's underway around workforce and around infrastructure investment. Um, and we work on those goals all year long. And then people come together at the summit each year to assess the progress, to identify what we need to get done in the next 
uh, year or so, and then to organize and commit to moving those things forward. So there's literally hundreds of people involved in the economic summit. It's an event. It's a great event. People want to come. They network. It's exciting. They get to meet people from different regions and at the state. But the real heavy work happens the other 364 right. days of the year. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, is this has been in existence since 2012. Can you point to some tangible improvements, changes that have come about as a result of the summit? Absolutely. One of the biggest high priorities in every region is growing their human capital, workforce development, making sure we've got enough people with the skills necessary to fuel um, their economies and get jobs that are uh, paying enough to help them support their families. And there's been steady progress in identifying things that the state needed to do to grow that CTE pipeline, and we've had a number of bills. Career technical education. Career technical education, and these are this is advanced manufacturing and healthcare and working in the green uh, economy, lots of very tangible jobs. And this last year, um, in partnership with the California uh, Community College Chancellor's Office, we championed and got through the strong workforce program, which puts not only more money into this, but does it exactly the way the regions wanted. Regional colleges have to cooperate with each other and consult with their employers. Um, the the money is going to flow based on need and ability to make a difference in people's so it's, lives. So it's real skills that are attached to real jobs that employers say they need. And there's an, a, a performance and accountability built into this to make sure it actually works. You know, it, it's interesting. You look at statistics and you find that, you know, the middle class is shrinking, poverty is, is growing. There's really no easy fix here, is there? I mean, if there's no silver bullet. There's got it's, it's a multiple multitude of things we need to do. One of the things we're doing in this summit is we've done some analysis about what are all those primary drivers for both persistent poverty or lack of upward mobility. And it's very clear we're going to have to both grow workforce but also grow jobs. And we're going to have to do something about the high cost of living, particularly housing. Um, the, the mix of those things are different in every region, but every region has to tackle those. You know, it's so, a really interesting point about housing that you're making that, 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 that when you look at studies, they say that's a big driver for poverty in, in California because people are spending over a third of their their salaries on just on, on housing alone. That's a big deal. And, and, and in fact, wages are not going to rise as fast as housing prices, so we're actually going to lose ground against poverty. The summit is the only place where all of those stakeholders that fight about that issue come together to talk about things they can agree on in the context of all the people who are impacted by the answers, the millennial leaders, the employers. The hospital association cares as much about housing as they do workforce. This is what the summit is, the place where people come together to talk about the big solutions. December 13th and 14th in Sacramento. Um, you know, I want to ask you about, about the summit. They're really focusing on three issues. Uh, they are housing workforce issues, and water uh, infrastructure. Why those three issues? And I'm wondering, is any one more important than the other? Are they interdependent? No, they aren't, and they are independent. And, and, um, and, and interdependent, you're they saying? They are interdependent. Mm -hmm. and, and if you, those three drivers I just referenced are actually represented by those. So workforce is, is clearly a big issue here. People have to be able to participate in this economy. Housing is the single biggest cost driver to our cost of living. Um, and infrastructure is usually the first thing we look to government do in terms of trying to help create jobs. Uh, and so part of this year, so we've always been trying to be, we try to be big enough to, to impact the solution, um, but specific enough to make progress. It's walking that fine line. This year, we're going to look at what we've done and, and, and ask ourselves, do we have a broad enough, deep enough agenda that we're advancing fast enough to actually restore upward mobility? Well, I want to thank James Mayer from California Ford for joining us. Up next, we're going to talk about one of those issues, infrastructure issues generally, and water in particular. This is the Matty Report. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. On KMJ. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute. 
It's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome back. Some suggest with some alarm that California's infrastructure is stressed beyond capacity. Uh, how does the state do more to invest in things like bridges, roads, airports, uh, rail lines, pipes to maintain our economic competitiveness? Our guest is Fred Silva, Senior Fiscal Policy Advisor with California Forward. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Thank you, Mark. So, uh, roads. People say they're crumbling. Uh, water, where is it? Uh, yet there doesn't appear to be a big appetite for spending money to fix these problems. Um, what's the summit's uh, prescription? Well, you know, the summit uh, has focused on the strength of our economic regions and where the investment should take place. Frankly, the state has been ambivalent about that. Uh, currently on the November ballot, there are 13 counties that have sales tax increases to invest more in transportation uh, over uh, half of the state's population will be participating in that discussion. So the state looks at transportation finance as a need to fix it first. They want to repair roads. But the question is, how do we add capacity to our growing economic regions? And for that, the, the summit has had as a priority to have means to do that, creating two years ago something known as a new financing authority known as, as Enhanced Infrastructure Financing you know, District. I want to ask you about those <clears throat> Enhanced Infrastructure Financing Districts. How do they work? Well, the, the whole concept is to take, as I mentioned, a regional approach to transportation needs or water resource needs or other infrastructure needs to bring counties and cities and special districts together to use their financing capacity to continue investments in their regional economies. You know, it sounds like a little bit like the self-help transportation taxes that some counties pass, like in Fresno County, for example, Measure C, um, as a way to kind of create, give more money for, for, for road projects. Uh, you know, are you seeing more counties doing that? Uh, yes, uh, indeed. That's partly because the state has not been interested in putting more money into transportation capacity. They're interested in putting more money into the maintenance of the state highway system. But when it comes to connectivity between uh, the eastern part of Los Angeles and the western part of Los Angeles, they frankly have had limited interest, which is why so much local initiative and local interest is there. What we tried to do with this new financing authority is to bring both counties and cities together to, to in order to capture the growth of their own economies and invest that into infrastructure. It's also that you can leverage that money. So a lot of times when you go out to get federal or, federal or state grants, they want you to match those funds. If you have local funds to match them, then you double the impact. Exactly. And that's partly why the summit took on that agenda rather than just trying to convince the state to put more money in to get, again, the growth in the local economies to be able to provide that match to state interest if we could get the state to put you know, more it, resources it in. It sounds a little bit like this is almost like a Redevelopment Agencies 2.0. Is, is this similar to a redevelopment agency? Well, it, it's, it's a bit different. Uh, remember that this happened after the repeal of redevelopment right. where the right. The is, summit, this, is this filling that gap? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, re, the reason that it, this be, got on the agenda of the summit in 2014 is that the question was, do we replace redevelopment? And the answer to that from, uh, from local civic uh, folks who were engaged in it said, actually, we don't want to simply put redevelopment back. We want a broader set of authorities, which is why they went with enhancing or improving the uh, infrastructure financing district statute that was already on the book. Do you have some examples of where this has been implemented successfully? Yeah, it's being implemented uh, at this stage where where cities and in some case cities and counties are doing all the feasibility work uh, to put that together. The city of Laverne is working with the county of Los Angeles to put together uh, a mixed-use housing and transportation project. Now, because this statute is fairly new, 
the uh, battery of economic development consultants and lawyers and the rest of it are beginning to put the framework together. Once those cities start that process, then we believe that more and more cities and counties in sub-regions, whether it's the San Gabriel Valley or in, in the South Bay in San Francisco, uh, or for that matter, the southern part of the valley, uh, will see the ease with which these financing authorities can be put together. Yeah, it's a wider array of projects that you can do with these, these districts. Yes. Um, besides these, uh, and I don't remember this, the name here, Enhanced Infrastructure Finance Districts, um, you need an acronym, something shorter than that, but anyway, in addition to that, any other money coming from any other sources? Well, the, the, uh, uh, there are resources that come from the state through the state's uh, water bond. Mm -hmm. uh, those those resources often require some local match, as you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's important for these two things to be aligned with both state money and federal money. I'm sorry, state money and local money. The, the fed, federal government uh, has put less and less resources into infrastructure, and it's hard to know when they'll come to grips with it. Kind of like it sounds like pulling up yourself by your own bootstraps in, in, in many ways. Let me ask you this, though. What, do you, what does the Economic Summit hope to accomplish when it comes to infrastructure issues? Well, this next, uh, infra this next summit, which will be in December, uh, we're focusing on two issues. One of them is the infrastructure needed for housing. Because these issues are all interrelated, housing is related to, to uh, jobs, jobs are related to housing. Infrastructure supports housing and supports those families that live in those mm -hmm. houses. So we're going to be focusing on how to get more infrastructure related to housing, whether it's water or transportation or waste management. Yeah, and then there's also workforce development, which is the, the third yes. part of that process. Right. Well, I want to thank Fred Silver from Cal Ford for joining us. Up next, we're going to talk about the One Million Qualified Worker Challenge that's part of the Economic Summit. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome back. Projections are that California could be short one million qualified workers over the next 10 years. How can we avert that economic catastrophe? Our guests have not only been studying the problem, they've been living it. Um, Kathy Martin is the Vice President of Workforce Policy for the California Hospital Association. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And Matt Leger is a research analyst with SEIU, uh, UHW, uh, Health Workers. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Kathy, let me start with you. Uh, most employers tell you that, you know, their need is really for qualified workers. That, that, that's really the problem here. Why is California so short in the number of qualified workers that it needs? Well, you know, the, the shortage of skilled workers is really not a California-only problem. It's a nationwide problem. Um, baby boomers are at retirement age, and they are retiring in great numbers and all at once. Um, for health care, this is complicated by the fact that we have nurses and critical health professionals leaving the workforce all at one time, while at the same time we have this increased need for health care services because we have this older population Aging to population. care for, we have sicker patients, and then we have the Affordable Care Act, which has expanded coverage, so uh, more people You're have access to You're getting hit by double whammies or triple whammies. Exactly. Here. So it's a perfect storm brewing out there where we have the need for skilled workers, yet a scarcity of workers. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, uh, Matt, you're with a union, Service Employees International Union, a very big union. Why would a union care uh, about uh, workforce development and qualified workers? It would think that would be a management issue. No, this is an issue for all of California. For us, we think about it when there's a shortage of healthcare workers, it causes delays in access to care. And we know 
that that can have detrimental effects on our communities. And as uh, it's against our values of healthcare workers to cause those sorts of things. So we, w we know that we need to develop the workforce. On top of that, we know that these are good middle-class jobs and we have to make sure that there's pathways for people to be able to get those jobs in California. You know, it's interesting to see the cooperation between management and labor uh, addressing, addressing an issue. Um, and as a, as a labor management arbitrator, I, I, I'm happy to see you guys do that. Um, so, Kathy, uh, you know, the Economic Summit is talking about something called a strong workforce program. What specifically is that? How would it work? Well, the Economic um, Summit support of a strong workforce program um, was really instrumental in bringing together education, business, government, and labor so that we could work together on ensuring that California employers have the skilled workforce we need now and in the future uh, so that we can um, keep com California globally competitive from an economic standpoint. Um, through the Strong Workforce Task Force, um, leaders throughout California came together to develop recommendations that would move the state forward in terms of career technical education, which is where many of these workers attain their um, education and their skills. Um, these, as Matt said, these are good jobs, high demand, and, and good wages. So we want to really make sure that the state has the capacity to provide that education and training, and the summit um, helps support the efforts of the Strong Workforce Program. Yeah, and that career technical education, those are really good jobs that can mm -hmm. come out of that. And people don't realize, I think they need a four-year college degree, maybe yes. not so much. You can go to a community college, get some great training for a job that pays very well. Absolutely. Um, so, um, Matt, let me ask you this. Um, do you think th this approach that the Economic Summit has really seems to be a regional approach? Um, why do you think a regional approach is better than, let's say, a monolithic statewide approach? Yeah, well, the, the most important part about the regional approach is because the needs of the Bay Area, Los Angeles, and Fresno are different, and particularly for healthcare workers. In Los Angeles, you need many more bilingual speakers, and in Bay Area, you need you know different types of workers as well. Um, Fresno, you need much more experience with asthma care. So the regional approach allows you to meet those regional needs and bring together the community, labor organizations, employers, so they can all um, provide students and local employers for the right skill set. Do you agree? Absolutely. And I think that through a regional um, sector, sector strategy approach, we can really leverage all of the assets in a region in a much more efficient um, way with diminishing resources for everyone. We need to come together as re regions to, to look at how we can solve some of our workforce problems. Well, it's interesting. It seems like you're breaking down some of those silos. Mm -hmm. and it used to be the, the state is one silo or maybe each local community, but you're saying, no, there's a hybrid here, a regional approach. Yes. Because the re reality is that problems don't stop at borders, right? I mean, if between cities or between counties, it's right. usually region-wide. Um, right. We certainly see that in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, Kathy, let me ask you this. You know, you got this one million worker goal, a huge goal, in 10 years. What are the short-term goals to reach that long-term goal? Well, the one million goal is not just healthcare, so I think it's important to, to point that out. That's really, you know, one million workers right. that you qualified need. Qualified workers, correct. Qualified workers. Um, but I think for, um, you know, one of the recommendations that came out of the Strong Workforce Task Force was the need for the community colleges um, who, who are providing much of this training and education to be able to respond to industry quickly. And if that means a new program for a high demand occupation needs to be developed, the college needs the ability to, to um, put that together quickly. So one of the recommendations was to streamline and shorten the curriculum approval process. And, and that's important, especially for California hospital members, because when we're a rapidly changing industry and we need um, programs to come up quickly. Connecting it to the real world, it Absolutely. sounds like. Um, so, so Matt, let me ask you this. Uh, One million more qualified workers, how are we going to know if this goal has been achieved? 
Well, we need to continue to push for some of the short-term goals, like a streamlined curriculum, like Kathy mentioned, and um, ensure that we continue to have a system that supports workers through um, that process and students through that process, because these are really demanding um, career and, and training courses. And you know, if we can't uh, have a system that supports people, then they really won't have the we won't have the type of workforce we need. And these are good paying jobs, and people want these jobs, but it can be very difficult to overcome all the sort of barriers that are currently in place. Okay, well, I want to thank Matt Leger with SEIU and Kathy Martin with the Hospital Association for joining us. So, where are those workers going to live? Up next, a conversation about California's housing crisis and trying to build a million new homes in the next decade. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome back. The nonpartisan legislative analyst offices cited housing, particularly along the coast, as a major contributor to income inequality. What can be done to address California's housing crisis? Our guest is Kathy Creswell, a housing policy specialist with Creswell Consulting. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to so, be here. Um, so what are the main issues uh, that are adversely affecting the supply of housing? Well, there's, there's a lot of things, and it's a very complex, but predominantly we're looking at the supply of housing, both how it is zoned and regulated in terms of whether it's providing a mix of housing for, op- for ownership as well as renter households, also the regulation of housing so local governments can control how much density is provided, the cost through requirements of high parking requirements, also the funding and financing of housing. So we don't have enough resources to actually fund and support affordable development And then in addition, all of the infrastructure and all the systems needed to help development occur in the right places um, are also lacking, so we need more infrastructure resources. And then in addition, there is a fundamental lack of support for growth and housing development in particular, which really impacts our ability to get the amount of housing and the affordability of housing we need. Is this a statewide issue or is this a local issue, a specific, let's say, to the coast? No, it is absolutely a statewide issue. While the the problems along our coastline are probably very most severe, uh, we have a statewide problem. There isn't a county in California which doesn't have a shortage of affordable housing. And we when you are, define affordable housing, you're saying it's, we spend more than 30% of your take-home pay basically on housing. Yes, yes. Ah, that's a chunk of change. I mean, if you add that, you add a car, you add you know, food, and not right. much and left lower over. In, and lower-income households are paying up to 50 and 60% and more of their need. But it's also, we are 12% of the nation's population, and we have 20% of the homeless population. Median incomes are going down at the same time rents and um, ownership or median value of homes is going up. And even in affordable, even in places that are generally considered affordable, for example, Sacramento and San, Santa Barbara, in both of those places there are only 18 to 19 available and affordable homes for every 100 extremely low-income households who need them. So it is definitely. Statewide. You know, is it also not just you know you know geographic or you know lo- in general regions, but also 
actually where housing is built, like uh, is it near jobs or is it near transit? Is that also an issue? Yes. Um, really, across the state, we need to we need housing everywhere, but we also need to put housing where it can have both um, co-benefits. So when we are doing tr uh, transit-oriented housing along transit corridors, we are also we are reducing commute times, which increases worker productivity. We are reducing climate change, um, or we are addressing climate objectives. When we build infill, we are addressing potentially the need in, in rural and in some of the Central Valley areas, the need to, uh, less of a need to uh, uh, convert land. and to convert right. ag land, right. um, and also meeting environmental goals. So you're right. Um, and when we do housing right in the right locations, we can have many, many multiple benefits. Uh, what, what actions are being proposed in this California Economic Summit to, to meet this one million home challenge? So we're looking at a combination of fiscal and regulatory reforms. So recognizing the need on the fiscal that we need a permanent funding source that would help subsidize housing for that segment of uh, our communities that the market will never be able to meet. Um, elderly, disabled, uh, chronic homeless. So we need the state to provide a permanent regular funding source. Uh, and then we also need to look at incentivizing local governments. Now, I was going to ask you, is that where kind of the action is a lot with, with local governments uh, in terms of reducing impact fees, which is a big deal, or regulations? Absolutely. The most critical decisions about fund housing supply and affordability happen at the local level. And um, so we need to help incentivize local governments to make some of the tough choices that they that they are forced to make when there is a lack of resources, there is a lack of infrastructure. And so we want to look at, for those communities who are trying to do the right thing, providing a mechanism that would enable them to have a greater share of the property tax when they are perhaps making some of the regulatory reforms that we think that are needed to, to expedite processing, to create more certainty in the processing, and then to actually link real outcomes with those incentives. It's all connected. I want to thank Kathy Creswell uh, for joining us and the other members of the California Economic Summit. Um, remember, it's December 13th and 14th in Sacramento. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Matter Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.